Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Now, let's talk about the the man who's come home uh, severely disappointed from his junket to China, where he was hoping, intending to create the fundamentals for a free trade agreement with the economic giant, the number two economy in the world. But they were having none of it because the Chinese will not be instructed, and certainly not be instructed to, by someone like Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, or any other person who were the Prime Minister of Canada. Catherine Swift, former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and economist and member of our Beauties and the Beast panel. She'll be back later today, but we're talking just this economic issue for now. Catherine, thank you for, uh, for joining us on this um, Mr. Trudeau expected something would significant would happen, and it hasn't. And he's kind of been swinging wildly at free trade dreams, and he's been mostly striking out. Do I do I understand that correctly? Yeah, I think it's three strikes so far. Actually, yeah. usually you're out after three. Yeah. In my uh, baseball rule knowledge, um, yeah, Roy, it's it. This was a real screw up. I mean, yeah, they're trying to cover it up now and say, oh, it was a big success. Well, it was only a success if you you know, consider flying around and, you know, on the taxpayer's dime a big success, which, of course, a lot of people in government do, sadly. But uh, the China thing, boy, first of all, any anybody, you don't have to be a super knowledgeable person on China to know that trying to sell this human rights stuff, especially with yeah. the current President Xi and his, he has, he has tightened up power in himself personally, equivalent to Mao, the first time any Chinese leader has done that, and which, of course, is worrisome. Mao, I think, killed about 25 million of his own people. Uh, but um, it, it, is, it is a huge uh, dictatorship over there right now in China. And, and again, anybody reading the newspaper would know that. I mean, you know, so either the advanced people, including the ambassador, John McCallum, uh, screwed up royally in raising expectations that formal free trade negotiations were going to be launched, which is exactly what was broadcast prior to the visit. Yep. Um, and, of course, a lot of what Trudeau is saying on the international stage regarding all this stuff that, frankly, should never be in a trade agreement. It's fine to push for these things, but not in a trade agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's more to play for the crowd at home, if you ask me, than it is internationally. But this was a bust. I mean, they blocked his photographer. They blocked a bunch of pictures. Treating this as a success really is it really is dishonest. <laughs> and uh, from what one of the Globe and Mail reporters re- reported, and I'm sorry if forgetting his name and drawing a blank on his name now, but I retweeted his tweet. Uh, The Prime Minister on the way back on the plane from China said to the Canadian reporters on board, I will give you, words to the effect, I'll give you all of the background information. I'll tell you about everything that happened, but you have to swear that you will not repeat it anywhere to anyone. That's awful. I mean, if you do that, then you've compromised your, well, you've compromised your job. Well, an awful lot of journalists, Roy, and you, you are one, so you should know this, but, you know, don't do anything off the record. And I know when I was dealing with media constantly as head of the CFIB, I never treated an interview as off the record, yeah, yeah. even if the reporter said it was. So I, I totally agree with you. That being said, in the bigger economic picture for Canada, I frankly think it's good 
that we won't be pursuing. And it doesn't mean it doesn't mean we won't ever be, but certainly not imminently pursuing formal free trade with China. We have a lot of trade with China now, so pretending we right, don't. Is just right. not and, and they're nationalists. I mean, Mr. Trudeau keeps talking about the how, how little he cares for nationalists and for for uh, for uh, uh, populism. But really, the greatest nationalists in the world are the Chinese. Well, they're worse than nationalists. Their 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 companies are all are all government owned or heavily government owned. Uh, they're not competing on a level playing field mm-hmm. with our Canadian private sector company, who actually are competing. Most of whom don't have gobs of government support behind them, and so on. So I think the Liberals in general, and this isn't just Trudeau. Gretchen before him, they have had, and, and Trudeau, you know, number one before that, uh, very cozy with China. And again, it's a big economy. You can't ignore it for sure from a pure economic standpoint. But extreme caution has to be advised. Let me ask you in the few seconds now. we have left, Catherine, how badly does Canada's economy require free trade partners? And uh, the Economist writes, changes in Canada's economy make that urgent. Things look good for the moment. GDP is expected to grow by 3% this year. And unemployment is 5.9% near a 10-year low. But oil and cars, which have sustained growth for more than a decade, face hybrid times. Mr. Trump is using protectionist threats to grab jobs and investment back from Canada and Mexico. Alberta's oil, which is costly to produce, faces growing competition from gas and renewable energy. The industries of the future probably include food, hydroelectricity, and artificial intelligence, but none matches the importance of cars and oil. I've got 30 seconds. Well, first of all, if we want to pursue free trade, we should make sure NAFTA happens. And if we want to diversify away from the U.S., the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, that Trudeau blew up a few weeks ago and still has a lot of uh, our international trading partners ticked off at him because of it, those two should take priority over China. All right, and we'll talk to you uh, in a little while with Linda and Michelle with a lot more to say. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks. Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Michelle Rempel, who is a, uh, the uh, immigration critic for the Conservative Party of Canada. And yesterday, there was an exchange between uh, Ms. Rempel and the immigration minister, the liberal immigration minister, Ahmed Hussain, in a parliamentary committee that had to do with the well, Michelle, was it all about the citizenship guide, or was there something else that was being discussed in that in that committee? Yeah, uh, the minister was appearing in front of our committee to, uh, on a routine motion, to look at uh, something called supplementary estimates. This is the process by which Parliament allocates funding to the government for various expenditures. So, in these meetings, um, you know, the ministers expected to show up and be prepared on a wide variety of topics. Um, I, I chose to go on this. Uh, topic, well, it shouldn't have been a surprise to him. I've been raising it for the last, you know, 10 days. And uh, earlier in the week, I had raised the issue of the fact that they've outs- outsourced the citizenship guide, uh, test questions to be developed. So that's where I started my question line. I honestly didn't think that it was going to go that way, because I thought the minister was going to respond to the question, and he didn't. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a surprise to a lot of people, I think. So uh, you said what to the to the minister, and, and how did he respond? Because from what I understand, it became somewhat heated. As a matter of fact, let's have a listen to a little bit of it. government has uh, recently gone to tender for a vendor who will write Canada's citizenship test. And it's also my understanding that the government has decided to revise Canada's citizenship guide. Uh, ostensibly, there will be expenditures related to this decision, and my questions relate to the content of both instruments, which has relevancy related to the expenditures included therein. Um, 
Will uh, the minister reverse uh, his decision to remove female genital mutilation from Canada's citizenship guide? I haven't uh, done that, and the assertion that, uh, first of all, the, the, the citizenship guide hasn't been written. It's, we are consult, we're still in the consultation stage to put so together. So the draft, uh, the draft? Uh, can I finish my, my answer, I don't please? have enough time. So the draft um, I'm guide trying to finish. Mr. Wait. Chair, can I finish? I've been asked Mr. a question. Chair, I'd like order. to finish my answer. Uh, point of order. I was so, asking a yes or no uh, question. I appreciate I've been asked a question. I'd like to finish my, an Mr. my Mr. answer, Chair, please, point of order. if that's possible. On decorum, you, you must appreciate I, I have very limited amount of time to question the minister. I'm looking for a yes or no answer, not a talk-the-clock answer. So my... I will be brief and, and brief. The Honourable Member is suggesting that I've removed something from a product that hasn't been completed, it, so I'd it, like to set the record straight about Okay, that. so that's how it went yesterday. So you were trying to get a yes or no on the removal of female genital mutilation being part of the discussion points and the issues that people uh, taking on Canadian citizenship, becoming Canadian citizens, would have to understand is not, uh, not, not welcome in this country. But the, the but the minister wouldn't give you an answer. So you know, further in the discussion, uh, so so what, the reason why I've been raising this is that a draft version of the citizenship guide uh, was released uh, in in late June. So this has been out for for months. It was reported on in the media, and media reports showed that that particular section of the guide had been removed in the draft. Um, so my question line was well. So, so he, he went on to say, well, we're consulting. And I asked, well, who, who, which group, who, who would possibly want that removed from the guide? And, you know, he, after interrogation, he said, well, no one. And I said, well, will you commit to reversing the decision? Well, we haven't finished consulting it. So what was shocking was nowhere in this, I think it was about nine-minute exchange, did he condemn the practice of FGM. And it, what is beyond me is that if no one is asking for this to be removed, then why would they still be? Why is this a question? Like, why why am I spending nine minutes of parliamentary committee time listening to you obfuscate on this issue? It um, it was beyond the pale. Um, it was bizarre, and uh, I, I just I just don't understand what happened. And I don't who's, understand the motivation who, there. Who's doing the uh, the review? Who are they doing the consulting with? And why is it, as you say, why is it necessary to have any consultation on FGM? So that is the question I asked the minister, uh, and that he responded with the same line he did over and over again, we are consulting. He then suggested that I wasn't consulting, and I pointed out that I had been, and that we now, we have a petition that over 19, close to 20,000 Canadians have signed in a very short period of time asking the government to reverse this decision, um, I haven't heard a single advocacy group suggest that shedding light on this practice, which part of the issue is that, you know, it happens in a, in a shroud of silence, and that part of the way to combat it is to allow women to understand that this is something that is not tolerable, that it's illegal in Canada, and that their right is to not have this happen to them. Like, having more information about this out there is, is a good and, and, and just thing. Um, I, I can't, I can't imagine somebody phoning you up right now, um, and having a justifiable rationale as to to having a line in the citizenship guide that talks about this. Um, no, I, I can't either. I, I just don't. I don't. I don't understand. And, and you have a minister of the crown 
Um, you know, and further in the exchange, you know, the, the, the chair of the committee had to intervene because, like, when I wasn't getting anything, I just said, well, what do you think, Minister? Like, what is your opinion? You know, you, you, you've used the same talking point. Let's consult. Let's consult. At the end of the day, this is your decision. What is your opinion on it? And he wouldn't answer, and the chair of the committee actually had to intervene. He intervened and said, well, the minister's opinion isn't relevant. I argued otherwise, but the chair overruled me because the Liberals have a majority on the committee. It was, um, you know, I've seen a lot of exchanges in Parliament. This was the most bizarre. Um, and, and frankly, his contempt, too. His tone was so contemptuous. It was um, uh, it was bizarre. Yeah. FGM is is a criminal offense in this country, is it not? It is. Um, so it's I, so it's I, cut I, and dried. It is. Um, but beyond that, Roy, like part of the issue is that women won't report this crime. There's there's a lot of reasons why women tend to not report it. So it's yeah. not usually it's not something that's frequently prosecuted. True. And that's because there's a lot of social stigma. So when you talk to people who are, are trying to combat the practice, the first line of defense on this is shedding light on it, right? Is getting information out into the public for people to understand that this is something that they don't have to undergo. Um, so, so to me, that's why, you know, looking at the citizenship guide as one vehicle to do that, you know, it, it, it's, resp- it, it's different than, you know, saying thou shalt not murder, right? That's sort of like a generally yeah, accepted, yeah. understood principle around the world. Um, and, and, and that, those are crimes that are reported. Um, you know, FGM practices that happen sort of in a shroud of silence, uh, there, there's something that needs to be in the citizenship guide, and that's why I've been so vociferous on this. Like, there's, I don't know why they would take, this, take it out. There's yeah. no justification. Seems to me that, uh, the, uh, that their plan is to take it out, and uh, the minister didn't want to be called out on it, and so he didn't want to answer, and he was looking for somebody to, to help him get away from your question. I, I, I mean, that would be speculation on my part. Well, but I'm I, just saying I that's what understand. it sounds like to me. Yeah, it was... Um, I, I actually had a whole other line of questions prepared, because I thought, well, after 10 days of me, you know, badgering him on this, he, he knew he was coming to committee. He, he, it should have been no surprise that this was being you know, raise, right. I, I thought he was going to just answer it on the first go, and then, you know, we would move on, but I was wrong. Well, now, of course, uh, they're in a box, and uh, clearly he, he needs to provide an answer, he needs to provide the correct answer, and he needs to do it quickly, Michelle, because yesterday's performance was just abysmal on, on, the, on, on, the, on the part of the minister. Uh, yeah, I, I I also half expected him after being sort of skewered over this that he would have issued some sort of a statement afterwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I I've been on the government side of the aisle before. I've seen you know ministers uh, have a you know you know have need to have clarification on the issue and then issue a statement later. They've been silent on this, um, so I just. I don't understand why. Maybe there'll be some clarification early in the week, but uh, if not, please stay on it and let's keep, let you and, and I keep talking about this. Uh, what's going to happen on this program? Thanks so much, and I appreciate you uh, shedding light on this issue as well. It's Any, important. Any time, Michelle. Thank you very much. What you're doing is extremely important. Take care. Take care.
Michelle Rimple, uh, Calgary Member of Parliament, Conservative Party. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. A lot of a lot of talk, a lot of news, a lot of activity, a lot of response to a decision made by the United States government, particularly by the President of the United States, to move the United States Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Uh, it's not going to happen imminently because it takes a long time for these things to take place, but the response has been instant in the Middle East, and it's been very strong. But uh, how much staying power does it have, and and really, what are the implications of the decision made by the United States and by its president? Joining me is Abderrahim Fukara. He's the Washington bureau chief of Al Jazeera. Abderrahim, thank you very much for the time. And was this a surprise decision uh, from from Mr. Trump, or or was this telegraphed? Uh, I mean, it's been telegraphed, but did you expect it when it came? Well, kind of, because uh, remember that the decision wasn't known the day that Donald Trump uh, announced it. It had been incrementally uh, leaked, uh, for example, to the New York Times. The outlines of the plan um, had been leaked to, to the New York Times. There had been quite a bit of uh, debate about what it's actually going to be, who is going to support it here in the United States, but also in the, in the Middle East. Nonetheless, when uh, President Trump announced it, because he is the president and because he finally uh, settled for everybody who was wondering about the formula that he was going to use, yes, the way he stated the case, it came as a big shock even to people who'd uh, known more or less what he was going to say but didn't know that uh, what he was actually going to say. Um, Jerusalem is not just any uh, city, whether obviously to the Israelis or to the Palestinians or to the wider Arab and uh, Muslim world. It, it carries a huge significance for Jews, Muslims, uh, uh, Christians. And although the argument by uh, Donald Trump is that he's just stating the obvious, a decision that had been made before, um, restated by Congress uh, last June, and he said he was just making good on something that U.S. presidents in the past should have done. Although he said all that, um, as you know, there's been a lot of uh, protests in uh, the Palestinian territories, in Jerusalem, and uh, in the, the wider Muslim world. Where is it all going to go? It really is hard to predict how long will these protests and this pressure from uh, the Arab and Muslim world and from uh, many others, such as the Europeans. How long is it going to last? Um, anybody's guess, but uh, it's quite a big shock, obviously. I was thinking that as the embassy is constructed, and this is going to take some time, they're not just constructed overnight, that's going to be the most telling time for me, and, and you're, you're far more conversant with the situation than I am, but as that goes on and the building takes shape, I would expect that if, if there's going to be some really significant negative reaction, we'll see it then. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, it, it, it depends on many different things. One uh, thing is it depends on what he, the president, and people in charge of the 
the plan at the White House, such as his uh, uh, advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, it depends what they've actually heard from leaders of the region, especially the main countries such as uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, obviously, leaders in the Middle East, there's a long tradition of these leaders saying one thing in public and saying something different uh, in secret. So if he's hearing uh, from in secret from the leaders in the region that, yes, there will be protests, we'll write them out, and at the end, um, it will be a, a good decision that you've made, then I guess he'll, he'll, he'll want to, to press on with that decision, even as he tries to revive the talks between the Israelis and the Palestinians. But if those leaders in the Middle East are, in one way or another, forced by public opinion in their own countries, um, if there's a lot of uh, street movement, if there's a lot of coordination, if there are protests, if there's violence, um, and it's sustained, then obviously we could find ourselves in uncharted territory, both in the Middle East and here, uh, where the decision was made in Washington, D.C. Abdurrahim, thank you so much for the time. Short notice, I really appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. Abdurrahim Fukara, the uh, Washington Bureau Chief of Al Jazeera on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I'm going to read you a few lines before I talk to the to my guest. I want to read just a few lines from something that he wrote and uh, an excerpt from it ran in newspapers in Canada about two weeks ago, and it appeared in Canada 150, a very special book, the full um, piece that he wrote. And here's what I want to read to you, and then I'll say hello to him. On April 16, 1992, I was released after spending almost 23 years inside prison for a crime I did not commit. Prison is horrible. The Supreme Court of Canada was not clear about my innocence and sent my case back to Saskatchewan for them to review. Saskatchewan would not go forward with a new trial. This was their way of hiding the fact that they'd convicted an innocent man. There was no apology to me and my family. This was the worst possible way to leave anyone with no clear verdict specific to innocence. In the end, DNA cleared my name. There were many factors contributing to my release. The one strongest reason is because my mother never gave up on me. She fired up the Canadian public who believe in what is right and just, and this made the difference. David Milgard, it's good to talk to you. Hello, Roy. How are you, David? Oh, I don't know. A little bit nervous right now because I'm just starting to talk, but once I get going, I'm usually not too bad at all. Well, we've had some good conversations in the, over the last week. Yeah, we have. David, when I when I read those words that you wrote about your mom, uh, there were many factors contributing to my release. This one strongest reason is because my mother never gave up on me. Talk to us about your mom. Well, my mom is very special to me and still is. Uh, she's my mentor. And sometimes if I have a tough day or a tough week, I, I give her a call. And she always has something there to say that, uh, well, this is my spirit, so it gives me some kind of direction and stuff. Well, all this was going on years and years ago. And she, uh, she would come up and see me inside prison. And I can remember, you know, many different times she said, David, you know, 
if you would just behave yourself a little bit better, you know, uh, that'll make a big difference in your life. And, you know, things, things will start to change for you. And, you know, uh, I guess eventually I just got wise to the fact that, you know, uh, I really did need to kind of clean up my act a little bit inside there. And, uh, I started to do some things for myself and maybe some things to help others and, uh, things did start to change. And it was, a uh, it was a lot of work, uh, I think the beginning of it all started when I was in Toronto. I got shot in Toronto. I took off from uh, Stony Mountain Penitentiary, and uh, I uh, ended up getting shot. And uh, she just wanted some sort of way to to keep my spirits up. And she said, uh, we're going to put up a reward for any information leading to my exoneration. And it was a long, long winding road with ups and downs and different things taking place in it but it was the one thing that kind of got things moving for us when when you were first talked to by police and then when the case moved forward and they took you to court and they charged you with rape and murder and this is going on around you and you know that you have done none of the things that you're being accused of and they're bringing forward evidence to convict you, and you know you've done none of the things that they're going to convict you of. And when the day comes that they pronounce you guilty of rape and murder based on the evidence they brought forward, and none of it is true, how do you... I don't, I don't know if this is a question you can answer. How, do, how, how does a person feel while that is going on around you, David? Well, to be frank with you... Uh... Right. I don't even like hearing you say that to me. I mean, I was convicted of murder. Uh, there was a, a terrible, horrible crime that took place, and she died in the back alley and was raped and everything. But just hearing you say that uh, upsets me. Mm-hmm. But the, the point is, how did it feel? Well, it felt horrible. I, I can remember actually, you know, listening to the people give evidence and knowing that it was not true. Um, the fact is that, you know, the police did what they did to uh, to one of the to both of the witnesses actually uh, kept the young lady in jail until she started to say the things that they wanted to hear and uh, another gentleman uh, you know he actually took a lie detector test after he'd given them a statement telling them the truth and then the same thing they I guess leaned on him quite a bit and uh, he changed his testimony you think that in some way or the other they would have simply just you know gave him another lie detector test to see if he was telling the truth, but no, it just, everything just seemed to go wrong there in Saskatoon with the police there at that time. Uh, I can remember my dad was always a very big man, six feet four, always played football and baseball, and it was always a strength to me. I always saw him as a very strong person, and I can remember when they read the verdict and they said guilty that I heard this big body moaning behind me and I turned around and I looked at my dad and I had never ever seen him look like that. He just looked like weak. And that was uh, was probably the the most uh, lousy moment in my life. Uh, after that, I don't really remember so much. It was just too too emotional for me to be able to cope with it. Today, and since your release, and probably before this, your your release, but very strongly today, you're working hard on things 
see things change in Canada. And I want to quote again from the piece you wrote. Wrongly convicted people are in a very bad situation. We must remove the legal obstacles, especially the criteria, that is keeping them from having their cases reviewed quickly and efficiently. If anyone can demonstrate that they are innocent, their case should be heard immediately. The present ministerial review process fails us miserably. We are failing innocent people twice. These men and women, and in some cases children, have done no wrong. There is no need to keep these people for years inside prison. This is the worst possible way to treat our innocents. Why, that's, that is so true. And, and, and what is happening? What, what, needs, what needs to happen, David? What, what are the changes that absolutely need to take place to change the process to accomplish what you're telling they need to accomplish? Well, we've had inquiry after inquiry that we create an independent board of review. This has been going on for 20 years. You know, why have these recommendations been ignored? We need an independent board of review to get these people out of prison now. These prisoners need to be freed, Roy. I can't, I can't put enough emphasis, emphasis on that. I, I, I have been talking to universities. I've been doing many different things. Uh, people have been involved. Uh, the Prime Minister himself has just recently got a letter from me and uh, also the Minister of Justice uh, also received a, a letter from me, and the situation is being outlined very clearly to them. You know, there's no need to have uh, years and years of appeals uh, go uh, by in a person's life when they are able to demonstrate that they have done nothing wrong, and it's simply a matter of it's not justice, it's just plain wrong what's taking place. And you can never get the years back. And let, let me ask you this. In, if I were to go into uh, any prison in this country today, would I find people in each and every prison in Canada, do you think I'd find people in each and every prison in Canada that uh, are there for a significant period of time but have done nothing wrong? Well, there's no doubt about it, Roy. There's lots of them. So does the... Do they draw? Do they do they draw a conclusion and then too often draw a conclusion and then try to satisfy the conclusion they've drawn in in the trial? Is it not about finding um, reasonable doubt in some cases? Is it, is it is it about yeah we think he's guilty so we're going to prove he is or she is? Well, it's a matter of something that has been termed tunnel vision. Uh, once they feel that uh, they have a person that's responsible for the crime. You know, their focus is uh, specifically to uh, to incriminate that that person. Mm -hmm. um, it's 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 really 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 bad. Um, I'm thinking of a fellow that died, and uh, and I'm just so upset that he died, and uh, he wasn't compensated. And I I was trying so hard to have them try to speed things along for him. And uh, the bottom line was they they had information that he was uh, I don't know 35. Uh, 45 kilometers away, maybe it was further away from uh, the, uh, what, what took place. And the, the bottom line is, you know, a, a police officer was there that identified him being someplace else. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a terrible reflection on us as a society that, you know, things like this continue to go on 
uh, if it wasn't for the Canadian public that do believe in what's right and just, you know, I wouldn't uh, be, wouldn't be talking to you now. I would still be inside a prison. You know, we just have to make this work. We have to get people involved in making the changes that need to be made and get this independent board of review to take place as soon as possible. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I'm speaking with David Milgard. 23 years of his life were taken from him, 23 years, and he was convicted of a rape and a murder that he did not commit. A young woman was raped and she was murdered, but it wasn't David Milgard. In your piece Canada, in Canada 150, um, David, you say and you write, we've had inquiry after inquiry recommend we create an independent board of review. Why have these recommendations been ignored? We need an independent board of renew, review to get these people out of prison now. I know how it feels to be inside those walls for so long. This is not justice. This is just plain wrong. Why? What obstacles have are you aware of that have been placed in the way of an independent board of review? Well, at one point, the uh, Justice Department uh, decided they would shuffle things around a little bit in that department, uh, suggesting that uh, that would uh, solve the problem. Uh, it, it certainly doesn't solve the problem. Uh, the the worst thing about it, and, and, and I hate to be straightforward and blunt, but, you know, even if they go about, say you were a person that had done no wrong and were convicted of it, and somehow you were able to uh, apply under the section that's available for you to apply under in the criminal code to have them uh, review your situation for you, uh, the sad thing is you have to exhaust all of your appeals you have to go through uh, appeal court after appeal court after appeal court sometimes. And then and I, a, a minister of justice, a former minister of justice, told me he was so upset once he, he was aware of the information. Uh, in, in this case, it was Stephen Trescott and the insect information that demonstrated that he wasn't guilty of having done anything wrong. But he couldn't just say, okay, you can go home, you know, and... He broke protocol, and he spoke with Stephen, who was very upset to see that he had to go back and have a new trial all over again. It's such a ridiculous, defunct system, and it fails everybody miserably, and it has to be. Uh, there's no, uh, they don't share the information with, with uh, the clients, and uh, they don't have the power to release a person, and then it has to start all over again. The same nightmare just doesn't stop. That's just, that's horrific. It I mean, is. That is horrific in the dictionary sense of the word. What happens, are there any repercussions? Several listeners have sent emails, David. They want to know if there are repercussions for the people who were engaged in wrongfully convicting you when some of them had to know what they were doing. Well, in this, in my situation, there wasn't any doubt that people were responsible for not bringing forward information that could have had me released uh, when I was, uh, let's see, I was arrested when I was 16. I was inside a penitentiary by the time I was 17. 
uh, my appeals came up when I was 18 or 19, they had information at that point in time that implicated the person that was responsible for the crime that later on DNA proved that he was responsible. You know, being, being in a position of authority, um, there's, there's terms that, that are used now. Some terminology, terminology has been changed. Uh, words have been changed. And, you know, I, I, I don't like to come across as a person that's upset, and I usually am not. But, you know, I could have been out of prison. I could have been home with my family. I could have lived out a big chunk of my life with my dad. And it was all taken away from me. And they simply tried to withhold evidence so that the person that was responsible uh, would not get convicted. And later, later he was convicted, and he died in prison. That was Larry Fisher. That's correct. Um, we've talked about your mother at the beginning of the segment. We have about two minutes left here. I had the uh, the honor of getting to know your mom, of speaking with her on the air and off the air. And she is a truly remarkable woman, and she was such a great champion of yours. And I was just thinking, for anybody who is wrongfully imprisoned who doesn't have such a powerful, strong-willed, eloquent advocate, that's a terrible, terrible fate and they better get off their backsides and create this independent board of review because every innocent per- person in prison in Canada has to be released. It's awful to hear what happened, but it's a, it's a privilege for me to speak with you, David. Thank you for so, so much for giving me the opportunity. Well, you're welcome, Roy, and I appreciate the fact that you, uh, you're trying to do something about something uh, where we really need to help people that need our help the most. Thank you very much. We'll do whatever we can, and I mean that collectively, Canadians. We'll do whatever we can to help you in this very necessary goal. Thank you, David, and all the very best to you. All right, thank you. Take care. David Milgaard. It's just not enough, eh? Take care. It's not enough. And he, uh, they offered him the opportunity to leave prison, all he had to do was say, I'm guilty. And they knew that he wasn't. Who are these people? They can impact your life and the lives of people you love simply because they want to or it's convenient. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. An issue that we've spent a great deal of time on on this program over the last year is chronic pain and the chronic pain suffered by literally millions, many millions of people in North America. Maybe some 60 million in the United States, possibly two to three, likely two to three million in this country. And regardless of our prime minister's declaration of chronic pain being just, I'm paraphrasing, kind of a mild annoyance. Chronic pain drives people to suicide. And increasingly so, we're told, because of the reactionary response by politicians and by some doctors. You've heard my interviews with the former Federal Minister of Health, 
and the registrar for the Alberta College of Pharmacists. We talked to patients, we talked to doctors, the editor of the Canadian Pain Guide, Pain Drug Guide for non cancer related pain. And you've heard the patients, you've heard them talk about their agony. And what we get in return is doctors who are now afraid to prescribe opioid pain meds. They're um, scared they're going to lose their license. From They're afraid the colleges are going to remove their licenses to practice medicine. So it's an honor for me to speak to my next guest. Her name is Kate Nicholson. She served in the Civil Rights Division of the United States Department of Justice for more than 20 years, practicing health-related civil rights law, and she secured powerful victories, including at the U.S. Supreme Court. She's uh, writing a book about her personal experiences with severe chronic pain. Uh, Kate is also an arts writer and enthusiast who helped found the new nonprofit TiltWest.org. And she was recently named by Westworld as the best think tank for arts. Uh, that was recently named by Westworld as the best think tank for arts and culture in the area. She was a senior fellow at Dartmouth College and is a graduate of Harvard Law School. And I also sent, also sent Kate Nicholson a copy of the Professional Standards and Guidelines, Safe Prescribing of Drugs with Potential for Misuse and Diversion from the British Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. Kate, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us on the air today. It's my pleasure, Roy. Thank you for having me. Let's speak about uh, the, the issue of chronic pain and, and the impact that it has on people's lives. And I think maybe the best way, best way that I can think of for you to do that for us, if you don't mind, is share with us your experience with, uh, with chronic pain, which our listeners will be able to see on, uh, on YouTube where, when you give the TED Talk. Right. It is available on YouTube. Um, so I, um, I had a, a surgery, which was actually for endometriosis, um, a fairly common condition that women can get um, that causes infertility. Uh, and I had what, by all accounts, was to be a routine surgery, but the surgeon actually sliced um, nerve plexuses in my spine. Um, and those are networks of lots and lots of nerves that innervate the back and the legs. Um, and I ended up um, in very severe pain uh, and unable to sit, stand, or walk for more than very brief periods with uh, the assistance of a walker for the better part of 20 years as a result of the surgery. Um, I was very fortunate to be working in the Civil Rights Division at the time that was enforcing, a, at that point, a very new law called the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and they were willing to accommodate my inability, uh, my, my need to work uh, lying down, essentially, um, which was very fortunate. Um, and I also had access to really good pain management treatment. And my doctors um, tried to uh, repeat surgery to correct some of the damage to the nerves. They did all kinds of nerve blocks. They tried lots and lots of different things in addition to a host of integrative treatments. Um, and eventually uh, prescribed opioids for me in addition to uh, integrative treatments, and those were what really enabled me to continue to work under very difficult circumstances. And, and how did the opioids affect your 
pain reality? Um, they didn't take my pain away. Um, but what they did was, um, you know, sort of allow me to function again. Uh, I, space opened in my mind and I could think and I could work. Uh, pain, when it's that severe, can be very limiting to uh, one's ability to focus um, and function both physically and intellectually. Uh, and I had been reluctant to take opioids initially. I, I didn't want to. Um, I worried that they would make me feel dopey and I worried about addiction. And in fact, they had quite the opposite effect on me. Um, they clarified my ability to, to think. Um, and I certainly never felt experienced a high for them. No one who I worked with in all of those years would have had any idea um, that I was taking any sort of medication. Uh, so they were incredibly helpful um, to, in allowing me to, to sort of sustain a life during those years. Now, if your pain had developed in 2017 and uh, heading into 2018, you wouldn't so readily in the United States and in some parts of Canada, wouldn't so readily, most parts of Canada, all parts of Canada, wouldn't have so readily been able to access opioids. That is correct, and that's why I got up a few months ago and gave a TED Talk about this, because um, I really worry about people today. You know, when you are in such severe pain that you become isolated, that your job and relationships are at risk, um, and you have no palliative measures, no ability to abate the pain, just because, you know, that, that's a serious problem. And it is, it is a problem for pain patients in the United States today. So I felt like it was important to tell my story, um, because all we hear about in the media is uh, opioid abuse, which is certainly a problem that we need to attend to. But chronic pain, at least in the United States, very serious chronic pain that's either persistent or severe affects 50 times the number of people affected by opioid abuse. Um, and very few chronic pain patients um, suffer addiction. It's not that it doesn't happen, um, and there are safeguards that can be put into place with pre-screening and follow-through care to help with that. But there's this sort of strange conflation that's going on with, um, in which patients and doctors are being blamed for the opioid crisis. It's interesting, uh -huh. isn't it, how the patient and the doctors are, 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 are to blame. What do you make of, uh, what can you say, what do you feel comfortable saying about what I sent you, and that is the College of Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia's professional standards and guidelines for safe prescribing of drugs with potential for misuse and diversion. And, of course, opioids figure prominently in this particular series of pieces of paper. Yes. It, I mean, it seems to suffer from, and it seems to be based somewhat on, um, some of the same problems with the, the CDC guidelines in the United States, which were designed um, not as sort of a... a, a a tool for all doctors. They were designed sort of for um, primary care physicians because I think there is a public awareness that pain and the treatment of pain is under-addressed in medical education in the United States and in, in Canada as well. Um, and so, you know, although there are people who specialize in pain management who've taken specialized training um, who know sort of how to treat pain it a lot of um, a lot of people in pain ended up having to go to to primary care doctors um, and a lot of them weren't weren't sort of trained in how to treat pain and so the CDC guidelines were an attempt um, I guess to address that problem although I 
I would say they're overly rigorous and, and that not enough people, physicians in the pain community were included in their their design. It's um, But it seems like what's happening in British Columbia is, is part of sort of what's happening in the United States. So it's, those were intended as simply guidance. And now in the United States, a lot of the states are adopting them with the force of law. Um, and it looks like these guidelines have, you know, many of the same flaws uh, in the sense that they don't really allow for sufficient uh, intervention or breadth of treatment options um, in within the doctor-patient relationship. Um, and it sounds like there is sort of a bit of uh, authority behind these, that they're not simply guidelines in British Columbia. Yeah. How is it people can be so obtuse about the obvious? You know, it's funny. You know, pain is, in some ways, it suffers from the fact that everyone feels it at some level. And I think unless you've experienced extraordinarily severe pain, which to me, um, and I'm, of course, just speaking from my own experiences, it's really sort of a different kind. It's different of kind. It's almost a different thing. Um, you know, I've had I've broken bones. I've had serious surgeries. And, and that level of pain, I would put it at about a two or three on a pain scale of one to ten, where my sort of pain condition was more of a 10. So I, I think part of it is people not really understanding um, the degree uh, to which pain can affect people's lives who live in it, who live with it, very severe pain or very persistent pain. And part of it is just that this is, you know, sort of a reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, the pendulum in the United States, there were in the 1990s, um, there was a push to, to, to treat pain more seriously. I think that was an important and right thing to do. Um, but there also was some sponsoring of, you know, pain studies by the pharmaceutical companies and, um, you know, some sort of market and collusive effects. And, I, and that, you know, arguably led to, to some overprescribing in certain situations. But what's happening now is we've gone, you know, completely to the other side. And all people here is, you know, sort of about people dying in the streets of opioid abuse. And that's really the only way in which this issue is being considered. Right. And what the, what the guidelines like this are going to do, or standards and guidelines are going to do, they will cause pain patients to have to do without what they require to get their pain under control with a doctor's prescription. And they'll force, these, these guidelines are going to force pain patients to go to the streets and deal with God knows who and by God knows what, for God knows how much, in the hopes that it'll provide them some relief. That's, yeah, that's correct. I remember in the early 90s um, and late 80s reading some, um, some studies about people before t- pain was really treated well mm-hmm. in this country about sort of a woman who was posing as a, you know, as a drug addict so she could go to a methadone clinic to get pain medication. And, yeah, I think people, you know, it is going to force some very, perhaps unintended, but very dangerous results. Yeah. And we have seen cases of suicide that are in which, you know, people have very clearly stated that this is the reason that they are taking their life because they cannot get access to pain medication anymore. Okay. And they Kate, cannot tolerate the level of pain. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. My guest is Kate Nicholson uh, for more than 20 years, served with the Civil Rights Division of the United States Department of Justice and uh, particularly in health-related civil rights law. Kate, is there uh, a path 
to setting aside these sometimes terrible, terrible guidelines that doctors are, are given for health patients or chronic pain patients, is there, a, is there a path to the courtroom to set aside these decisions, to make these regulator, regulatory bodies um, not so powerful in the edicts they deliver? Um, I, I think there are a variety of, of options of, available uh, in the courts, and I think that those cases sort of need to be brought. I mean, arguably the law that I enforced, the Americans with Disabilities Act, is one is one way of doing that. It protects both people with severe chronic pain and people with opioid use disorder. Um, there are possibilities for sort of fair claims act cases and a, n- a number of things. Unfortunately, right now, everyone's really just focused on uh, prosecuting pharmaceutical companies. Um, and uh, so I think partly we also need to change the conversation, um, which is part of why I'm speaking and, and writing and advocating and advocate to regulatory bodies. Um, we need to sort of have a presence to, to help to affect change. But undoubtedly, you know, there is there are arguably Supreme Court precedents for a duty to treat um, the World Health Organization, although, uh, you know, has said that Pain is a human right. So there, there are a variety of different paths that lawyers could take, but I really believe we need sort of a multi-pronged approach, uh, some of it lobbying regulators um, and politicians, some of it with lawsuits, but a lot just raising awareness because so many people that I know have only heard um, the negative side of opioids. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have uh, certainly have a drug overdose problem, but we're, we're also losing many more people still to alcohol abuse um, in terms of deaths and, and many more than that to, to cigarette-related deaths. Um, and all of those are arguably addictive, but there are no corollary health effects uh, that are benefits to, to alcohol and cigarettes. And I think it's really important for us to look you know, carefully and cleanly at the numbers and try to open people's minds, which is something wonderful that you're willing to do on, on this show, to show that there's another side to opioids, that they also heal people, that they're palliative, that they're necessary, and that cutting supplies um, and cutting off access to care is not going to be an effective way of, of alleviating treatment, of alleviating the problem in treatment of opioid use. Well, you know, uh, we had a very prominent Canadian pain physician on this program, an, anesthesiolo- an anesthesiologist at SickKids Hospital in Toronto. And uh, sh- she was talking about chronic pain and how it, if it leads to suicide, there are four steps that invariably, I guess, follow one another. The first is pain. Second is social mm-hmm. isolation. The third is depression. Mm-hmm. And the fourth is suicide. So, so when I heard that, and I started to hear calls from people explaining what it, the hell they were going through and the misery they were forced to endure by those who have the power to create the misery for them, I thought, well, I'll do whatever I can on this show to hopefully make a bit of a difference and, or, or, or have a, give them a voice. And, uh, and, and you're doing that, and I, 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 we only have a few seconds left. Thank you so very much. Uh, we, hopefully, you'll come back to the program. I would like that very much. And uh, we, I know you've got uh, a book coming, and next time we have you on, we'll talk about uh, how that's going. 
Thanks so much, Kate. Okay. Very good. Thank All you so best. much, Roy. I Bye. really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you very much. Kate Nicholson. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.